Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. To start the show, we're going to the United States and the Irish Times Washington correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon has been encamped at the John W. McCormick Courthouse in Boston for the former Anglo-Irish Bank Chief Executive David Drum's bankruptcy trial. Simon, can you just take us through briefly, like what's happened so far? Well, what's happened over the last two days is we've had David Drum, the former chief executive of the bank, in the witness box. Um, he's been questioned today uh, by his own lawyer after the questioning by IBRC's lawyer ended earlier this morning. Um, the bank and the trustee, which are trying to deny Mr. Drum a discharge from bankruptcy and a fresh financial start, they're claiming that he tried to conceal assets and default creditors by transferring cash in the order of about a million dollars, $1.2 million uh, to his wife, and that most of that was transferred in the autumn of 08, the height of the financial crisis and in the period thereafter. And they also claimed that he made false statements and financial statements that he put in, uh, filed with the bankruptcy court, and by omitting those details of those assets and uh, transfers. So over the last two days, most of the period, uh, most of the testimony has been about um, David Drummond being questioned by the bank about those um, those transfers to his wife, those cash transfers, and those property transfers. And uh, he's, uh, he, you know, it was said in, in in the trial that you know he 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 had made a staggering number of errors. What type of errors were put to him, and uh, did Mr. Drum accept this? Well, what it centres on is, is filing. When you file for bankruptcy in the US, you have to put in what's called a statement of financial affairs and schedules. This lists all of the assets and liabilities that you own, but it should also include any transfers that you made in the previous two years before filing for bankruptcy. And the reference to staggering number of errors was made by the lawyer acting for the bank. He said that the uh, bankruptcy filings that Mr. Drum put in in October 2010 contained a staggering number and he shouldn't. He should have put in, uh, made reference to cash and property transfers uh, totaling $1.2 million to his wife. Um, Mr. Drum didn't like the the word staggering, he said that's your word in response to that to, to what the lawyer said to him. But he did admit, yes, there were a lot of errors um, in in the testimony today. Being cross examined, he did say, um, being examined by his own lawyer, he said that he 
outlined details of the cash transfers both to his own advisors before filing for bankruptcy in October 2010 and that subsequent to filing for bankruptcy he told the trustee and he outlined uh, the details of cash transfers to his wife in 2008-2009 in bank statements that he submitted but crucially he didn't include those cash transfers in the official bankruptcy statements that he made to the court. He subsequently amended those statements in May of 2011 um, but he did say under questioning by the bank today he admitted that he swore under oath and at risk of perjury that the statements that he filed in the case outlining those financial details were complete, even though he admitted significant asset transfers to his wife. And the timing of these the, 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 these $1.2 million of cash and property transfers to his wife, I mean, a lot of this was going on in, or some of it was going on in 2008 when he was still in charge of the bank. That's when it, most of it started in the latter half of September 2008. This was a time that David Drum described as Armageddon in the banking industry. He said that uh, the world was falling apart this time shortly after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And he said that he made these asset transfers and cash transfers to his wife because his wife wanted money of her own. In statements before the trial began, his defense team uh, outlined the, the case that they were making and in that they said that he was concerned about the state of his marriage he was, uh, his wife was concerned about the very long hours that she, he was working and worried that something might happen to him that she wanted money of her own so that's why he transferred these started transferring these large sums of money the bulk of that money would have gone over uh, to Lorraine Drum in the six months after uh, September 2008 and over the period which uh, during which Mr Drum resigned as chief executive of Anglo-Irish Bank in December 2008. So clearly uh, he could see that there was an awful, awful lot of trouble ahead when he was doing this. Uh, just the other thing that came out, Simon, was that there were, there were emails uh, read out which were between Mr Drum and his US bankruptcy lawyer, Stuart Grossman, uh, which, you know, you know, where he appears to be saying, you know, that it, it never pays to be cooperative and this type of stuff. How did that go down? Well, this is Mr. Trump being questioned about how seriously he was taking the bankruptcy process after filing in October 2010. Um, an email was read out to the court in which two days before submitting these crucial uh, bankruptcy statements, in October 2010, he emailed his lawyer, his bankruptcy lawyer in the U.S., a guy called Stuart Grossman, and said... Um, he said in the email, it never pays to be cooperative, right? And he's asked about this, and he said, well, is that a joke? And he said, yes, it's very much a joke. Um, the court then was played a video of a previous testimony that Mr. Drum had given at a deposition. And during uh, that, that, that uh, deposition, Mr. Drum described the comments uh, as just a comeback. He says, it's just a joke, really. Stewart and I enjoyed those kinds of twos and fro's, he said. Then in, in court today, um, John Hutchinson, the lawyer for IBRC, asked Mr. Drum if he took that sentiment expressed in his email to uh, Mr. Grossman very much to heart in all aspects of his bankruptcy proceedings, and he replied, absolutely not. Um, afterwards, when Mr. Drum was questioned by his own lawyer, he wants to make it very clear that it was always his intention to cooperate in the bankruptcy proceedings, and he never intended to conceal anything about his finances. And Mr. Drum said that he first realised he should have included details of cash transfers to his wife, Lorraine, in October 2010, that he should have included them in October 2010. He only realised this on April the 1st, uh, 2011. How did he say, you know, that like that this came about, that like, like how did he react to this and who who's he blaming for not telling him you should have disclosed the money? 
Well, this was one of one of the last creditors' meetings that he had in um, in 2011, and he realised during that meeting that he should have disclosed those cash transfers. At least that's what he told the court today. And he was asked by his lawyer how he felt after that meeting. He said he was absolutely devastated. He said that he had asked his advisors about why they hadn't advised him to include those cash transfers. And he said his bankruptcy lawyer, Stuart Grossman, gave him a pat answer and told me to calm down. And then subsequently they came back to him as advisors and said, well, you know, maybe we should have included them in your original statements. Um, and he, then he described this as just a total disaster. Um, so in, in many ways, Mr. John is pointing the finger at his advisors. He did say to the court that he outlined in mid-September 2010 that... Um, he told them about the cash transfers and he was also advised by them that the cash transfers may become may come under scrutiny in an investigation and there may be a fraudulent transfer action against him. But um, again, it was critical that he chose not to uh, include those cash transfer details in the October 2010 bankruptcy filing. Oh, well, the total disaster is a good phrase, Simon. I mean, he could apply it as much to his bankruptcy as to his 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 time as chief executive of, of the bank. Uh, just finally, uh, when do we expect this trial to end, Simon? And, uh, you know, what's at stake for Mr. Drum here? Well, the trial is expected to last five days. It will continue on into next week on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, we won't get a ruling for several months because the judge has allowed uh, post-trial submissions from both sides. Um, and also, what's at stake for Mr. Drum here is that if he doesn't get a discharge from bankruptcy, he could be on the hook for these debts. He owes about 10.5 million euro for some time. And it's possible that the bank and the trustee could seek to get a lien over his future income so that he may have to pay over money for many money he earns in future to the bank and to the trustee. And Simon, I think you're asked this question in every single interview you do about this bankruptcy trial, but you know, is there any sign of Mr. Drum having to come home to, to answer the various questions that uh, lots of people would like to ask him back here? None at all. We asked him, uh, it doesn't appear so anyway, we asked him as he entered court yesterday to leave any comment to make on the judge's finding in the recent criminal action and he declined to answer any, any questions. He went straight into the courthouse. So it doesn't appear that he has any intention of returning to Ireland to participate and cooperate in the guard investigations into the collapse of Anglarish Bank. Simon Carswell, Irish Times, Washington correspondent. Uh, thanks for coming on the programme. The news that Apple may be about to acquire Dr. Dre's headphone company Beats has been greeted with lots of excitement. Could this muted 3.2 billion euro deal be the next big thing for Apple? Uh, I'm joined by the Irish Times' Davin O'Dwyer and Brendan O'Driscoll, chief executive of Soundwave, to discuss the deal further, as well as what's going on more broadly in in the world of online music. Davin, first of all, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this deal. Uh, can you tell us about, you know, like where did the whole story spring out of in the, in the first place? Uh, it took people by surprise uh, when the FT first announced it. Uh, you know, it sounded like a very well-sourced report, which was quickly, uh, quickly followed up by a similar report from Bloomberg, which uh, uh, in the way these things pretty much put it beyond doubt. Uh, the real surprise uh, was because this is entirely out of keeping with his, Apple's history of acquisitions. They tend to go for small uh, tech companies that can be just absorbed into their uh, their pre-existing models. This signals quite a change in, in tack. Um, and even the most seasoned Apple observers have been uh, scratching their heads, uh, particularly since it's, it's two weeks, uh, nearly two weeks since the initial rumours surfaced and there's still just rumours. And yet there's no, uh, there's no sign that, they, uh, that the deal is going away. 
Well, I th- if there weren't rumours, it would have been killed off by now. Indeed, uh, yeah, yeah. You can see completely from Dr. Dre's side, uh, the reason for doing the deal is $3.2 billion. <laughs> <There's> tri- <laughs> yeah. uh, But from Apple's side, you know, what do you think is the logic there? That, like, why, why do they need, why can't they do this themselves? Uh this, this is the, the real curiosity in that the um, headphones are probably not a $3.2 billion business uh, for a company of uh, Apple size, um, nice and all as they may appear. Uh, uh, the music streaming service that Beats uh, launched earlier this year um, has been uh, you know, well considered, but in a market dominated by the likes of Spotify and radio, um, uh, it hasn't really moved the needle on that side of things. Uh, and plus, uh, apparently any acquisition of Beats would require all those deals with the labels to be renegotiated. So they aren't, they wouldn't actually be purchasing uh, the, uh, the the actual streaming service. It would have to be retooled, essentially. Um, so an awful lot of the uh, uh, suspicion is that it's an acqui-hire of sorts for uh, not so much Dr. Dre, I imagine. Uh, interesting in all as it might be to imagine him around the campus at Cupertino, uh, but for Jimmy Irvine, the uh, the co-founder and uh, uh, legendary music mogul, uh, self-styled legendary music mogul, who apparently was, uh, was uh, good friends with Steve Jobs um, and is a, a major mover in the music industry. So it does seem to be um, the, the music side of things does seem to be at the heart of the at the heart of the the, the deal, but uh, how that's going to manifest is what uh, is, is what's I mean, so you, curious. You don't see anything there, Davin. You know the, the way that we see fashion brands. You know that they team up with celebrities in order to sell more product. I mean, is there anything there that like that like that they want to get the Apple wants the endorsement of the Dr. Dre name? Um, last time I checked, these endorsements come a lot cheaper than three point two billion. Uh, uh, in any case, that's not really been their style. I think uh, Jeff Goldblum narrated ads back in the 90s was about the height of it. Actually, in my column, I commented on how Alicia Keys was an ill-fated global creative director for BlackBerry for for less than a year. Um, uh, I think Will I Am fulfills a similar role for Intel, I think. Um, And I think most people see through these these, fairly brazen attempts at attempting to buy some sort of uh, uh, relevance and and cool. It's never really been the Apple model. If that was Tim Cook's thinking, um, then uh, I think people should be quite concerned. And Brendan O'Driscoll, uh, Chief Executive of Soundwave, uh, before I ask you about Apple and Beats and all that type Mm. of stuff, uh, just fill us in a little bit about your own company, what it does and uh, how you're doing. Yeah, so we um, we set up a company here in Ireland called Soundwave, which is uh, somewhat in, in, in this space as well. Uh, so it's an iPhone and an Android app, uh, and it tracks what songs people listen to when they install the app on their phone. Uh, on top of that, then, people can find their friends and follow each other, and then they can see the music that their friends are playing. So if I use the app and I listen to my music on Spotify or on YouTube or anywhere else, all my songs will instantly appear in Soundwave and then you'll be able to follow me in Soundwave, and then you'll be able to try out the songs that I've been playing and purchase them or listen to them as well. So it's just a very simple way to kind of be a lazy music listener and and find those people that know about music, follow them, and then see what they're listening to. And what do you think of the Apple Beats deal? Is this going to have any impact on you guys? Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot happening in the space at the minute. I mean, Apple and Apple and Beats. There's the uh, F- Facebook had a big announcement about music yesterday as well, and Twitter and SoundCloud have a, have their own kind of rumor mill going on as well. So there's a lot happening in the space right now, which is undoubtedly uh, good for us. Kind of shines a, a positive light on the on the area that we're in. But yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of interesting. Um, 
interesting things still to come with the Beats uh, and Apple um, conversation. You know, it's still a rumor as such right now, which I think is very interesting. So deals of this size normally don't come out as, as rumors, or if they do, they're very quickly shot down or confirmed in, in a short space of time. But it's been it's been a number of weeks now, and, and we're we're still all guessing. So that to me kind of um, is a little bit abnormal. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what does happen. And Brendan, you're an EY Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year nominee, uh, and you're also Soundwave is also coming up to its one year uh, birthday. Uh, can you tell me, like, how many downloads have you got now? I mean, it was quite a big number the last time we spoke a few months ago. Yeah, so we've we, we launched the product uh, last summer with the help of Stephen Fry and some other um, some other cool people, uh, and since then we've uh, we've kind of grown our user base from from zero up to to over a million, uh, and we've users now in 190 countries. So it's uh, it's amazing to see, wake up every morning and see our, our, our users in places as far as Uzbekistan to Moscow to, to China to, to, uh, to Mexico. And, and all of that is, is from the product that we built here in, in Dublin in, in Rathmines. And uh, Brendan, you're getting you know lots of traction among customers, but mm. you know how about you know making some revenue uh, for for your interesting investors who include people like Mark Cuban? Yes, I mean right now we're, we're revenue generating as people. Um, discover tracks within our, our, our app, they can purchase those tracks and we have a deal with Apple and with Google that uh, you know as they purchase tracks through their stores we get a percentage um, of, of the sales. So we're making a little bit of money there but our, our longer term goal really is um, understanding on a, on a kind of a global scale uh, what music is being listened to and how often and, and, and where and we can really kind of serve up that information as really interesting insights for the music industry so they can figure out what's working and what's not uh, and also for other industries like advertising and marketing so people can figure out what songs are are taking off and what songs aren't so we'll, we'll kind of be able to measure that on a on a real-time global basis and Davin how big a challenge do you see that for the music industry you know that working out like what are people listening to online when there's so many different ways that they could be listening to it yeah, it is really, really fascinating uh, to uh, to hear uh, how the Soundwave product works and uh, and also to think what it says about the, the changing nature of music listenership. For so long, we were just so uh, uh, accustomed to it being kind of a purchasing. You, you purchase and then own um, uh, certain uh, you know, certain albums. Um, and that has been utterly disrupted, I think. Uh, I certainly, since signing up to Spotify, have never, haven't opened a, a, a CD packet or, or even my iTunes library. Um, and... Uh, uh, I think uh, what, what Brendan is working on is um, uh, really gets to the crux of how music listening is is a kind of a, a core part of identity um, and affiliation. So um, one thing that Beats does do very well is is project um, uh, and, and trade off a sort of a, a strong brand identity uh, that people affiliate with. Um, and I'm sure your your, your figures and, uh, and and algorithms on. Uh, track exactly that sort of uh, affiliation and identification and, uh, uh, and, and this is the, the future really of, of, of music it's, uh, uh, Spotify had a fascinating uh, study on how often people skip music, mm. uh, they, they get a song and within 5 seconds more than 30% of tracks are skipped, I'm sure you, you I'm not sure if you have access to that sort of yeah, data but, yeah we do yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, whereas the when, you know, the year of the CD or even the download that was uh, that was totally unmeasurable mm. um, 
Uh, and these are this is these are the sort of uh, key uh, key changes that we're just gaining gaining insight now for the very first time. Uh, and the the relationship, the larger relationship with music is is changing massively. Um, I think the you know the success of uh, apps like Soundwave and things like the Beat Studio uh, really signal a, a changing course uh, for the music industry, in which it possibly will have more uh, uh, more in common with let's say the fashion industry um, or rather than as such the entertainment industry as we uh, as we've kind of understood it in terms of the actual business model I think I think key, key business intelligence there is important as well that the music industry are, are finally realizing that they need to understand who their customers are and exactly what their customers are doing and mm. it's not enough to rely on you know how many how many of this track or of this CD have been purchased you mm. know that was basically how they ran their entire business was that single metric and mm. that metric these days is completely irrelevant mm. um, you know uh, people downloading music illegally people streaming music people accessing music a whole bunch of different ways so mm. so really kind of regrouping and, and understanding which which metrics should they be looking at and what business intelligence should they be gathering I think will really help them to, to move to the next stage mm. and what can you tell us Brendan you know like from your own analytics of the people who are downloading um, the sound wave I mean what can you tell us about them like are, 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 do you know what like what sort of age group they are or what sort of countries they are uh, or yeah absolutely yeah. I mean, one, one of the most interesting things I see when, when, when we delve into our data and, and something that the record labels are, are continually um, you know, reaching out to us looking for access to is uh, understanding the adoption over the various different ways of listening to music. So in emerging markets right now, we're still seeing a, a large percentage of people uh, listening to MP3 files through a, a, a local, a regular player. And mm. um, when you look at the more established markets, you're seeing uh, those numbers drop off and you're seeing a large spike and a large increase in the number of people who are using streaming services uh, as well. Um, and then in the, in the real kind of power user category, what, what's really interesting is people aren't just using one player um, the guys that are really into their music are, are using different players for different niches so you know they'll they'll use YouTube for live music they'll use SoundCloud for for um, you know long long set lists they'll use 8-tracks for remixes they'll use Spotify for mainstream um, so really understanding what causes one person to to stream versus you know purchase or or to adopt multiple subscriptions to multiple services versus one. If you can understand um, how somebody will transition through those phases, I think the record industry can use that to, to their advantage as well. And that's again the type of data that we're we're kind of uh, data mining now and understanding what what's happening with. And when do you, do you think you might do your first deal with a with a record label or? So we're, I mean, we're we're in, in in deals. We're in discussions now with all the all the major record labels, you know. So we're we're kind of in in, in a kind of a validation period now and a trial phase with with these guys, you know. And, and it's kind of a little bit of figuring out what they want and what we want, and and then that that those relationships then will kind of progress nicely into uh, into a more formal business relationship. And do you think that's something, Davin, that you know, that the the record companies that they're that they're becoming more aware that you know that they're they're quite out of touch sometimes with what people are listening to. Yeah, well, I guess the, the record labels have, um, uh, are, I think, still predisposed towards the model that was developed in the 50s and 60s, which uh, basically allowed them to, um, you know, they were the kind of the sheriffs of the uh, of, of the town. Uh, the number of stories of artists uh, feeling ripped off by record labels is uh, is one of the uh, staple uh, tragedies of, of you know any recording artist's life. Um, and I think they're being, uh, you know, they're kind of circling the wagons in a lot of ways, but they, they've been um, completely disrupted 
initially by MP3 downloads and Napster. Uh, um, uh, the you know Apple iTunes Store gave them a kind of a lifeline. Um, uh, but now, I mean, I think you, you briefly mentioned YouTube. I mean, um, you know, it's not like Google bought YouTube to be a music service, but YouTube is one of the, the, the biggest uh, music uh, ac- you know, services out there yeah, now. Absolutely, especially in the younger demographics, mm. right? You know, where where some of the the, the younger demographics they they haven't built up extensive MP3 collections mm. back when everybody was purchasing tracks. You know, they're they're not old enough to have a credit card to purchase a streaming service subscription, mm. um, and then they turn to to services like YouTube, which can offer on demand pl- in, instant playback of their of their favorite tracks, and mm. you know, easy to share um, a YouTube clip across Facebook or across a WhatsApp group. You know, it's it's kind of instantly accessible for the mm. younger demographics, and that's a huge driver. I mean, uh, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the fastest growing um, methods of consuming music now is mm. through YouTube. So, and I think that's kind of indicative of how. Um, you know, music, uh, music is, is more than just an industry, and it's certainly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it's so much a part of, uh, especially you know, for, from, from teenage years on, it's a huge part of how you kind of self-identify. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's very hard to actually control that as a sort of as as, as just a, as a business as such. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And what, what I find fascinating now is, um, you know, we're not just we're not working at Soundwave just with the the music industry anymore. We're seeing uh, inbound requests from the marketing and advertising industries, like I was I was mentioning earlier and they're recognizing that music is a kind of a core um you know a core identity piece of, of somebody so you know one of the areas that we're looking at now is um you know identifying which tracks for for which specific markets which specific uh, you know locations that they can append to mm. their to their latest tv commercials that will strike a, you know resonate with that local market um, and they're thinking in a lot more detail and how, how they can use the medium of music to communicate with their end customer and mm. um, you know and that can be anything from a fashion brand to somebody selling, uh, you know, uh, beer or any any other type of uh, industry as well. And what's the uptake being like among bands, Brendan, or artists themselves? Like, are they proactively coming to you rather than... Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we've got all, all, all the uh, major kind of Irish guys on there now. So Codeline, for example, or the Cronas, or, or any of those types of guys, Hudson Taylor, are all using Soundwave because uh, it's, a, it's a great way to stay in touch with your fan base. Um, you know, you sign up as an artist for, for Soundwave, and then when you're listening to your music, uh, your fans can follow you and see what songs you yourself listen to. Um, so we're seeing huge uptake um, where, where people want to know, you know, when these guys aren't on stage, what are they, what are they listening to, or what inspires them? And similarly, again, not just for music, but in the in the sports space, we're seeing big uptakes. So you know, we got all the, the Irish rugby players, for example, using Soundwave, and it's really interesting just before a big game to go onto Soundwave and see, you know, what's Jamie Heaslip listening to five minutes before the the, the final of the Six Nations? You know, so and what is he listening to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Any embarrassing stuff there? That's <laughs> he'd, the, he'd kill me if I yeah. if I said it. Uh, the really Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's it's really it's really cool because it kind of provides a, that extra kind of insight into into what they do before you know to mentally prepare themselves. So. Well, uh, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see where this deal goes. I mean, there's certainly a lot of money involved, three point two billion. Uh, hopefully, someday Brendan will have you in here where you'll be mulling such as a similarly sized offer. Exactly. Uh, Davin O'Dwyer of the Irish Times and Brendan O'Driscoll of Soundwave and nominee for the EY Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And that's it for this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. My producer was Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer was JJ Vernon.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 